Good morning, everyone. Well, today we're looking at um, Luke chapter 2, very, 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 very briefly. Um, it's a topical sermon that I'm delivering this morning on joy. And um, yeah, I, I, I struggle with topical sermons, but I must say um, I learned a lot myself during the week uh, with this particular topic. And um, yeah, let's hope that God blesses uh, a few of you there with it anyways. Lord Jesus, we pray that... Um, we pray, Father, as um, your sons and daughters, that um, we recognize the privilege that we hold in just even sitting together here this morning in this building as a church, that we're not here for, any, for no reason. We're here because you've called us. Um, we may not know exactly how that worked. Um, we may look to the person beside us and think, who are they? Why am I sitting beside these people that are not part of my earthly family, but we know that we're all part of a heavenly family. Again, we mightn't be able to explain it all that well, but we know there's a connection between us and the other people in this room that you have only made possible. And it's this connection that we try and remember on these Sunday mornings, um, and especially coming up uh, to Christmas when we think of Advent, Advent, and when we think of the fact that you sent your son uh, to bring us back into a right relationship with you um, and with each other, so that as we look at one another, we can remind ourselves that we have been touched by you, Father, and that we, uh, we look with uh, delight in our hearts as better things to come. In your Son's name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Um, well, one of the most sought-after things um, that seems to me, at least, that people seem to be pursuing, and it's they're probably pursuing it from time immemorial, is, is happiness. And so much advice and insight has been offered nowadays on the internet, in books, about how to be happy. I mean, I just did a cursory search on Google, and I just had to break down giggling after 30 seconds. There was just so, much, so many different things. 51 ways of being happy. <laughs> you know, I don't know where they got the 51 from. Others in were more kind of realistic, three, and the magic seven. And you had all these sort of suggestions by gurus and guides and psychologists and philosophers and courses and meditations and mindfulness and all these things were just bombarding me. Um, even as I was in Galway there a couple of weeks ago, in, in an essence to the religion or the spirituality bookshelf as it's now called, there was just so many alternative books and many of them taken up by this topic of how to be happy. And the retail and the marketing world, as well as we know, has jumped on it. And they want to sell us happiness. You need this to be happy, or you need that to be happy. And let's be honest, uh, we probably all caught up with it every now and a while, in a sense, aren't we? But people ourselves, you know, we do pursue happiness, and there's no doubt about it. Even as Christians, sometimes we, we try and pursue things that are not very Christian-y. <laughs> and it's just probably our flesh is still bubbling away. We look at that new car, at that, those nice shoes, or that new phone, or that white screen, and we think, you know, if I had that, I'd just be that small bit happier. And while these kind of things can give us short-term happiness, um, they never really will fill this void that's in us. Um, Jesus himself said that, you know, we don't live by bread alone. And we can really see as Christians that now that we're on both sides, or we can see both sides of the fence, so to speak, we can see that uh, real 
happiness only comes from something which is other than temporal things, other than physical things. And as Christians, we delight in that. But sometimes I think, you know, boy, if I was still not a Christian, you know, I would still be pursuing things, thinking they'd make me happy, and they, I'd just end up frustrated. And we sometimes forget about that, you know, as, as Christians, that there is a world that is groaning all around us, uh, pursuing happiness, meaning of life, and peace, and just flailing out blindly at it, and not really understanding that real joy and peace will only come not from things, but from a person, from God. You know, there's a rather stuffy old-sounding question in the old Westminster Confession, and it goes like this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer then it gives is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the chief end or purpose of this particular confession is that we glorify God. In other words, that we lift up His name, that we praise Him, we adore Him, we worship Him, and that we enjoy Him forever. Now, this is kind of strange because... I'd say if you were to ask most kind of churched or churchy people, you know, um, what is the purpose or the meaning of life? They'd say, oh, yeah, maybe to know God and to worship him or to know God and, and carry out his commandments or to know God and do what he wants or be good sort of thing, you know, leaning towards the, the work sort of thing. Not many Christians even would probably say, well, it's to enjoy him. I don't know, am I on a limb with that one? But certainly as a young Christian, it took me many, many years to appreciate that I am made to have joy in Christ. Uh, even as a young Christian, I thought I was made, yeah, to uh, enjoy the fellowship of Christ, uh, to feel at one with Christ, but I didn't really understand it much further, uh, you know, past that. I was still kind of in the, in the, in the framework of, well, now that I'm saved, what, what do I have to do now? Is it like my former faith where I have to do things kind of to stay in God's favor? Maybe it was a poor or shallow understanding I had with the gospel, but it took me a while to understand and to get this, this joy, and it only comes from maturing. But anyways, um, some Christians might ask, well, what does this mean? Because the Westminster Confession says that, there's, that the reason why man is made is that we're to glorify him, to God, and to enjoy him. And if this is true, it's the only way that that void in us, this void that we try and fill up with other superfluous stuff like nice shoes or nice holidays or whatever. It's only the only way that this void really is going to get filled. Because that kind of happiness is not the happiness that we are to pursue in life. Because that happiness depends on positive emotional feelings that mostly come from, from favorable external conditions or, or things. And usually these things are beyond our control. That's why they're, 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 they're just ethereal. They're, just, they're here one minute and they're gone the next minute. They're beyond our control. We need something deeper. And for the purposes of this sermon, we're going to call it joy, which is rooted in the character of God and the promises of God, especially then revealed in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if we're commanded to be joyful, um, and we are commanded to be joyful, even a cursive read of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I mean, look at Psalm 149. Verse 2, let Israel be glad in its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Psalm 97, 12, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 67, the nations are commanded to be rejoicing. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 96, we see even the natural creation is commanded to be rejoicing. Let the heavens be glad 
and let the earth rejoice. So if God commands his people, as we see from the Old Testament, and the New Testament as well is packed full of, of, of exhortations to be joyful. If God has commanded this, and we're sitting here in expectation this morning, thinking, hmm, well, if God has commanded this, then it must be possible to experience this joy. After all, God wouldn't give us a command if it's not possible for us to do it or to carry it out. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Because God has made it extremely possible for us to experience the joy that we are seeking, the joy in him. In fact, when the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit, along with love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And right through Scripture, God's people are commanded to rejoice and characterize by rejoicing. It's not optional. And you know, you may ask yourself, well, how can I do this then? How can I um, exude this joy? Do I kind of convince myself that I have to be joyful because Christ told me to be joyful? Christ told me that I'm one of his brothers or sisters, and therefore I should just feel this joy all the time just pulsing in me. And if I don't, should I try and kind of psych myself up so that I can feel it? Well, no, this joy is really outside of us. It comes through being poured in by the Holy Spirit. We're like vessels of joy. So we don't, a bit like the Holy Spirit, when we sometimes pray, come Holy Spirit, fill me. The Holy Spirit is always in us. He doesn't need to come again. We may distance ourselves from the Holy Spirit, or we may distance ourselves from joy, but the reservoir, the well of joy, is in us already through the Spirit. And this particular um, emotion um, is unchangeable. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he praises the churches of Macedonia in his letter to the Corinthian, letter, or the Corinthian church. And listen to this. He talks about them and he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, when we read those words, they probably make us a wee bit uncomfortable, especially this time of the year when we're watching the pennies and we're trying to save up a little bit. And we read that these people, these folk out in Macedonia, in their extreme poverty, overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I wonder why the Macedonians could experience this. I mean, we watch our pennies, don't we? Sometimes even in church, we come with a begrudging heart to the worship, to worship, and we might feel a bit begrudging of handing over our hard-earned new notes to God, depending how far or how near we are to God during that particular week. Some weeks we're, we're in a good place, we're on fire, and giving is a pleasure. Other weeks it's a bit more like a duty. How can these people, these Macedonians, who are experiencing extreme power, have such gladness of heart and rejoicing in the fact that they were giving their over their hard-earned <coughs> money for Paul's collection? Well, the only way it was is they were looking at circumstances beyond what they were experiencing at that time. Their eyes were fixed on something greater and more real than the reality even that they were living in. They were realizing that how generous Christ had been to them and the least they could do was to be generous for other people, their brothers and sisters in Christ. <coughs> they were looking beyond the temporal, beyond the physical, to something beyond their own circumstances, and they were generous, realizing that generous Christ had been so generous to them. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. Verse 4, he says, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort 
And then Paul says, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. This is counter-cultural, isn't it? Uh, normally today, we are taught by the world that um, affliction is bad. Of course, none of us enjoy it. Affliction is to be avoided at all costs. We are to live comfortable lives. And yet Paul here is saying, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Boy, I wonder could the world of retail market this? If they could, they'd be on a winner. Even Paul, when he wrote that epistle of joy called Philipp the, the one, uh, Philippians, uh, right through that, I think Paul mentions four times of the joy that's just bubbling up in him. Rejoicing is mentioned many, many times. And the funny thing is, Paul wrote that letter while he was in chains in prison. Some of you this morning might be thinking, you know what, Parik, that's fine, but I've seen that God commands now for people to, or for God's people to rejoice and to be a people of joy. But you know what? I, I don't feel this joy some of the time. Some ears at this moment sitting down here might feel or might hear possibilities to the command that we should be joyous and be a people of rejoicing. And others might hear problems with it. What are you hearing? Are you hearing problems or possibilities? Because some people definitely, and we all go through it, just don't feel joy at times. And you know what? Both responses really are justified because we are still living in the flesh. We are not perfected and glorified fully. I think really if we are honest and if we examine ourselves, we can see really that the Christian can sometimes and often be on a roller coaster ride where you're hot for the Lord at one time. Your heart is just exuding joy. And then even later on that same day, you can find yourself with a dry heart full of lethargy, and you ask yourself, what's, what's happened? I was, I was there with the Lord. I was in good, sweet fellowship this morning and prayer with the Lord. And then later on that day, the Lord is, feels distance. Well, at least that is good, if you're honest like that, because let's put it this way. Many, many things can make us feel joyless. And these things are probably, a lot of them, tied up to our physical being, our temporal side, you know? We get tired. We might have had a good night's sleep. That all affects it. We mightn't be getting exercises, especially at this time of the year. It might be our age-old enemy sin. We could have the wrong priorities in life. We could just be too busy in life, being busy at being busy. And it's good, at least, that people are aware of the fact that sometimes they lack joy and that they honestly want to look at it and see if they can remedy it. Maybe you could ask yourself, if you find yourself living many seasons of dryless um, joy, have I understood the riches of the gospel fully? Have I appropriated them to me personally? Or do I kind of hold on to them as some sort of intellectual truth out there? Sure, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I believe that God sent him to die on the cross for me. But do you really understand deep down what it means to you? Or maybe your shallow joy is the result of pushing back against God in some way. D.A. Carson writes something very telling. He says, No one is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. He doesn't live, love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures. And he doesn't love Christ enough to relish holiness. 
He perceives that his rebellion is iniquitous, it's wrong, but obedience seems distasteful. He does not feel at home any longer in this world, but his memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied, and he cannot forever remain ambivalent. Now, perhaps you are such a person this morning here in church. Perhaps you need to be reminded of the sweetness of the gospel, the sweetness of what God has done for you again. Because if joy is commanded by God, then he has not asked you or me to experience something which is not possible for us to experience. Because do you know what? God is totally committed to your joy. And the reason why he's totally committed to your joy is because his joy, or your joy, is tied up, unseparate. You cannot separate them from his goodness. A.W. Tozer writes, The goodness of God disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill towards men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people, or in the joy of his people. Imagine that. God takes holy pleasure in your joy and in my joy. So it's because of the goodness of God that the angel Gabriel this morning in our passage was heralding this good news. Look at verse 10 and 11 again. In verse 10, the angel says to Mary, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the angel Gabriel is proclaiming good news for all, for all nations, for all peoples, because a Savior has come to them. Now it's amazing when you read the Gospels and you read especially the coming of Jesus, the amount of time that joy is mentioned in them, or the amount of, of, of times that people have experienced joy. Look at John the Baptist as a baby in his mother's womb, leaped for joy when Jesus in his mother's womb came in. Or how Mary rejoiced in God, her Savior, when she was told about the good news of Jesus. Or later on in Acts 8.8, the healing ministry of Christ was continued by the apostles. And this brought much joy because in Acts 8.8 we read, So there was much joy in that city when Philip was proclaiming the gospel. And he was proclaiming it in Samaria, the, um, the, dreaded, the dreaded enemies of the people of Bethlehem and of Jerusalem. And again, in Matthew 28, 8, when the ladies or the women at the tomb uh, discovered that Jesus was alive, they departed quickly, it says, from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So joy prevailed around the coming of Christ in those who were troubled in heart. And that's the good thing about this particular time of the year, Advent, leading up to the birth of Christ. It's a time for the lowly of heart, to seek and to find happiness and joy in something other than this world. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer comments, he says, 
the celebration of Advent is possible only for those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. And that something greater to come is, is God himself. Because it's wonderful, isn't it, that our God is not a lofty God sitting up there distant, reveling, as Michael Reeves says in one of his books, in his own holiness, looking, looking, in, his, looking in the mirror every morning and saying, boy, I am so perfect. Our God is a sharing God. He just loves the Son and the Holy Spirit from time eternal, and he wants to share that. In, in fact, in old medieval literature, God was kind of described as, as a font, a fountain from, from which all blessings and graces and mercies flowed through the Son and then on to us. And this is the God, this is our God who has stooped down to do business with us sinners. And this Jesus Christ, as Jason mentioned this morning, this great gospel of ours, the coming of Christ in Advent, has been hinted at right through the Old Testament. We can see he was a picture of the tabernacle. He was a picture of the temple. He was a picture of the kings. He was a picture of the prophets. And so on, so on. You'd have to be blind to miss it. And because Christ, or because God, is the one who loves, who reaches out to undeserving sinners, he is also fulfilling in a part his own nature. He loves us, but he's also a God of nature. Or a God of justice, I should say. So if there's anyone here on this Sunday morning who's poor in spirit or is humbly seeking God, or even a believer who's going through a season of lukewarm joy, let us remind ourselves of the sweetness of the gospel to which we're called. Let us remind ourselves of the cross, where the love and mercy of Christ, or of God, met with his justice. Just as Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ came, raised his hand to offer up his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. So the father, 2,000 years later, raised his hand, but did not stop it and brought it down on his son's life to cut his life short. There is so much involved with this, we could have countless sermons on this, but go to Romans, please, Romans chapter 3. And Paul here is kind of setting up a courtroom picture here. Just as Abraham offered up his son Isaac, it's pictured in another way in Romans 3. Let's go to verse 23, 24, and 25. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul writes, For all have sinned, that includes us, and fall short of the glory of God. And then Paul uses this rather stuffy legal language, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So picture the heavenly courtroom up in heavens when Christ was on the cross. Something was taking place in heaven. There was a judge there. And there was a guilty man there because Christ was offering himself on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The sinner, because of what Christ has done, is now made right with God. There's been peace made between two warring parties. And Paul uses the courtroom language, the very formal courtroom language, to say that sinners are justified. That means they're made just 
They're made right in God's eyes. God the Father brings down the gavel and says, not guilty. Your sin has been taken upon the shoulders of someone else. Your penalty has been paid. This is the wonderful news of the gospel. An exchange has taken place. Christ has taken upon his shoulders our sin, and we've been given his righteousness. So that when God now looks on us as sinners, and we know we still sin, he doesn't see us as sinners anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. And as Paul says in Colossians, and because Paul says in Colossians, we have been hidden in Christ, we can now have fellowship with Christ, fellowship and friendship and peace with God, and we're not under his wrath anymore. Because God's wrath will be poured out on sin. Because God is a just God as well as a loving and merciful God. He cannot let sin go away. Paul puts it, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther puts it nicely. He says, If I have sinned, my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. All his is mine, and all mine is his. Isn't that wonderful? And there's more good news. Because God is as committed to saving sinners as he is to bestowing you and me with joy and love and fellowship in the Son when we're saved. How is this? Well, he does a plethora of things for us. He adopts us as sons and daughters. He makes us a new creation. He gives us a new heart full of new desires. He indwells us with the Holy Spirit who enables us to live a life pleasing to him. He makes us priests. He makes us kings. And Paul says he makes us fools for Christ. No longer have we to go through a high priest or any priest to have communion and fellowship with God we can go directly to the Father. In fact, not alone that, we, can, we are privy to understanding in a deeper way, though not fully, how the Son communicates with the Father. And we can see that in John chapter 17. It's wonderful. In that particular prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father shortly before going to the cross, and he's praying for you and me. And he asks the Father a couple of things. But the two things that he asks the Father on our behalf is that the Father would keep us, and the Father would sanctify us. The Father would keep us, in verse 11 he says, and the Father will sanctify or make us holy or enable us to follow his way and be pleasing to him in verse 17. But right between those two verses comes verse 13. And John writes, concerning Jesus, or Jesus speaking, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Imagine that. Jesus is praying to the Father, saying to him that he is expectant that his joy will now be in the believers, the joy that he shared with the Father. Now, we can't really understand probably a millionth of what that means, but it's good news. It must be good news. If I can share in the joy that the Son has shared with the Father from time eternity in the past, that's got to be good. And I think as Christians, we understand and appreciate more and more that as we mature. But we never really understand it fully, I think. Perhaps even when we're, when we're glorified and with Jesus again. Jesus reflects the same thing in John 15. He says it again. 
In John 15, remember, he's asking, or he's, he's commanding his followers this time to abide in his love, to do as he has commanded, just as he has abided in his Father's love. And he says in verse 17, in, 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 um, verse seven, in verse 13, he says, but now I am coming to you, the same thing he said in, in John 17, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves again. So when a sinner is made a Christian, he's drawn somehow into the fellowship of the Trinity due to his or her union with Christ, being in Christ. And this can only affect us in a good way. Like many of us here have friends, school associates, work colleagues outside of church. And we can attest to the fact that, you know, if we hang around with people, the type of people that we hang around with will ultimately sort of rub off on us. Um, and my heart especially goes out to teenagers who, who feel perhaps peer group pressure more maybe than adults. And they feel that they need to hang around maybe with that clique or that group to be accepted uh, you know, in class or in school. And sometimes they may, some of the bad habits may get rubbed off on them. But imagine being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Imagine him being your friend and you're, excuse the flippant words, you're hanging around with the Trinity. That has only, can only affect us in a good way, in a good positive way. And the ultimate way that it affects us is it makes us look more like Jesus by spending time with him and fellowshipping with him. So in John 15, we are told that to experience the joy of Christ, we must abide in him as he has abided in the Father. We must be obedient as the Son obediently went to the cross with joy, so we should walk obediently through our trials, keeping our eyes fixed on God who is faithful. Well, what can we do? Well, I think the only thing that I can suggest, and I'm sure other people in the discourse afterwards might suggest other things, but I think we should constantly remind ourselves and each other of the love that God has for us and what he's done for us through Christ to heal our hearts if they're dry of joy. Because our hearts are a well full of joy if we are in Christ. And if we're having problems sinking that bucket down to access that joy. Well, we've moved away from the source of that joy. We need to get back to it. Read your Bible. Read passages like John 15, John 17. Read them regularly. Maybe read some good books on the holiness of God. I have a few there if anyone wants to um, see a few of them later. I think The Good God by Michael Reeves is one of my favorite. And pray. David prays in Psalm 51, when he was dry and devoid of joy, he prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. This is the great King David. And uphold me with a willing spirit. So pray to God for joy. Pray that he let you access joy by being close to him. And pray that he'll keep you in his spirit. Let's pray. Father, um, let's try and think more deeply as we go through the coming weeks coming up to Christmas and indeed the rest of our lives of how we can access your joy more and more. Because it's a profound possibility. We shouldn't look at it as a problem. 
Help us, Lord, to continually examine ourselves to see if we are walking in the faith. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Um, help us to keep focused on the spiritual and not on the temporal. Help us even as we leave this room today, as we go out into the, into the world, to uh, look differently on it, uh, to be motivated to spread the joy that we have in Christ to people that are hurting, to people that are lacking in joy, people who are um, pursuing a kind of a frivolous, giddy happiness in life, nothing that is anchored really in anything uh, like the rock, like God. But Father, we thank you that you have spoken to our hearts. We thank you that we can uh, read your text, read your word, read your diary in effect, and glean such delights from it and question ourselves whether we are living in it. Help us, Lord, to be tough on ourselves and we question ourselves. Help us to, uh, to be honest with ourselves. Help us to be honest with others. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.